Hello and welcome to another installment of Grasping Scripture. Again, I'm glad you could join us today as we're looking at the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. That's Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth, the 15th chapter. Now, if you haven't been with us for this study, I encourage you back up to the beginning of 1 Corinthians and start in there. It lays a groundwork and there's some explanation along the way that helps you understand what's going on in the church, the dynamics, the culture, and how all that plays out to lay the groundwork for understanding what Paul has to say in the 15th chapter. But if you're just looking to, you know, check things out and and see what you think of this podcast, and if it's useful to you and you just want to hit the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, then, you know, welcome aboard. Glad to have you. In all of this, we're trying to study God's Word together, verse by verse, to truly grasp hold of what Scripture says and how it applies to our lives. So again, welcome. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer as we begin our time together today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your many blessings. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word, to dig into it and find not just words on a page, not just echoes from history, but Father, to hear your voice and the vo- sense the voice of your spirit speaking to our hearts through your word. Lord, we thank you for Christ, your word become flesh dwelling among us and dying as the atoning sacrifice for our sins, that we might have a right relationship with you, not based on how good we are, because we're not, but based on how much you love us, because you do. Lord, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we start into Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, Paul is continuing his discussion. He's talked about the use of spiritual gifts in public worship. He's talked about, you know, some of the basic aspects of spiritual gifts, of love being the most important thing, of how the way that the Corinthians were living out their faith and doing their, if you will, church life um, was not something that was reflective of the kingdom or the values that Christ was calling them to, and that they had some things they needed to straighten out. Well, now we get to 15, and he really focuses on the core of the Gospels. And, well, in looking at this, he's going to touch on a few topics that you may go, huh? He makes references, uses them as illustrations. We'll, We'll delve into those as we get to them. But let's start at the beginning of chapter 15. Of 1 Corinthians. Paul says, let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you, unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. So he's saying there that, look, this is the grounding. This is the truth. This is the truth that saves you if you hold to it. That means that it's not enough to just say, oh, yes, I believe Jesus is God. I believe he died for my sins. You can say that and then six months from now decide, yeah, I thought that was right at the time, but no, I don't think that's true. I think, you know, Buddha or whatever. And then you didn't really have that life-saving, life-changing encounter with Christ as your Savior and Lord. You've got to hold firm 
to it. It has to be the foundational aspect of your life. So you've got to continue to believe that message that you were given. And then Paul does throw in the caveat, and he's starting a larger discussion here, um, building an argument, if you will, by saying, you know, that's how you're saved through that message. If you continue to believe the message that I told you, it's that message of the good news. It's the one he already preached, the one they received. And then the last part of verse two, unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. Because many of them were wanting to live like the message of the gospel wasn't true. And he's going, okay, well, you know, here's your option. It's either true or it's not true. So you're going to have to land that plane and live with the consequences. Verse three picks up with, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture says. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. For I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I am not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. So here, the first part of that, verses 3 and 4, really, um, many see that as an early creed of the church, you know. And by creed, I don't mean something that's, you know, we're going to beat you over the head with it. In addition to Scripture, not that we beat you over the head with Scripture, but um, it is a summation of the core beliefs about Christ of the early church. I passed on what was most important. And what was passed on to me? What is that? Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised from the dead on the third day. And then he goes into five and following confirmation of that. And this was significant because when Paul was writing this, people didn't have to take his word for it. There were eyewitnesses they could go ask. And that's basically what he's daring them to do. He's saying, look, if you believe in the gospel that I have shared with you, verses one and two, then you need to stay rooted in it, unless it's not true. And the implication is some of you are arguing that the gospel I shared with you isn't really true. In that case, here's the core of it if you want to argue with it. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. There's the core of the gospel. But moving on from that, he challenges them. He was seen by Peter. Well, Peter was still around. He was seen by Peter and then by the 12. After that, by more than 500 of his followers at one time. So, you know, it's not, oh, they really wished to see him and they thought they saw him. No, 500 people saw him at one time. Most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James, later by the apostles, last of all. As though I was born at the wrong time, I also saw him. So you don't want to take my word for it. There are other eyewitnesses you can check with. It was plenty of evidence for anyone that had a challenge against the Christian faith, especially those in the church at Corinth. 
that were starting to twist the gospel or deny the gospel. So he just puts it out there for them. Says, here it is. Here's how many people saw him. Here, I'm part of this. Now, if the gospel's not true, then you've got to deal with all of this. Otherwise, you're going to have to accept the gospel is true, is the argument he's laying out. Well, he goes on in verse 10, but whatever I am now, because you know, he was saying I'm not worthy to be an apostle after the way I persecuted the church, but whatever I am now, it is all because God poured out his special favor on me and not without result, for I have worked harder than any of the other apostles. Yet it was not I, but God who was working through me by his grace. So it makes no difference whether I preach or they preach, for we all preach the same message you have already believed. So he's going back to saying, look, this is the gospel. It doesn't change dependent on which of the apostles is preaching it because it is from God and the power they have to carry out the ministry they've been tasked with is power from God to carry the message of God. And he's laying that out before the Corinthian church, essentially saying, now you're going to have to deal with this. You either hold fast to it, you either continue to believe, or you decide, no, it's all bogus and walk away. Which would be ridiculous. And that's his point. You have encountered the truth. You have seen the power of God at work in the lives of believers. In what sane reality would you walk away from that? So he's calling them back to that foundation, to those roots, because they'd gotten distracted. They'd gotten distracted by their own greed and desire for acknowledgement. They got distracted by their fascination with, with different ideas. That, read through the previous chapters. I mean, come on. They got distracted by a lot of stuff. They wanted to be accepted by their culture and society. So they started um, embracing some deviant behavior that was even considered inappropriate and illegal by the Roman society. Um, and yet they were embracing it. They had drifted away from the core of who they were called to be and the truth of the message of the gospel. And Paul is and has been through all these chapters calling them back to that foundation. And it's a good reminder for us as believers today, we need to stay rooted on that foundation that is Christ Jesus in our lives. We need to stay rooted in the gospel, that good news of the saving grace of God. And the rest of our life needs to be built on that. Let's not get distracted by the things of this world. Let's not get distracted by the newest and shiniest idea, but let's hold fast to that grace of God that saves us. Now, he's laid out the gospel, the core of the gospel, and he's given a little bit of uh, evidence for it, eyewitness accounts that can be verified. Now he's moving on to talk a bit about this concept of the resurrection of the dead. Um, for some, that was a sticking point. For others, it wasn't. Let's look at what he has to say to that church at Corinth. But tell me this, 
Since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying that there is no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all of our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God. For we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there's no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless, and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. Wow, that's pretty bleak, isn't it? But he's helping them to understand. He's laying out this argument. You know, here's the gospel. Here's the foundation for your life. You don't need to shy away from it. You don't need to water it down. You need to understand it's grounded in the truth of God. It's grounded in eyewitness accounts from people you can go ask now about seeing the resurrected Christ. And then as he moves into verse 12, you get the idea. There were people in the church that were flirting with the idea that there is no resurrection from the dead. Now, how you claim to be a Christian and yet say there is no resurrection from the dead, I'm not sure how that works because it like totally misses a huge point of the gospel. And so Paul puts it out there and says, look, this is true. Or if it's not, if in fact there is no resurrection from the dead, then here's how that plays out. You have no hope of resurrection because there's no resurrection from the dead. But not only that, then Christ, he didn't rise from the dead because there is no resurrection from the dead. And we are lying about God because we're saying God raised him from the dead. And that doesn't happen. So not only are we wrong, but we're lying about God. Oh, and it gets worse. Because our only hope for forgiveness for our sins, for a pardoning of the guilt we have, from our sins is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And if he didn't rise again, then we are, as Paul says, still guilty of our sin or still guilty of your sin. Um, and so everyone who has died trusting in Christ for salvation, well, uh, surprise, they're lost. It meant nothing. In fact, if our hope for hope in Christ is only something that sustains us for this life, then we ought to be more pitied than anyone in the world. Why? Because we've been rejected, we've been persecuted, we have denied ourselves, we have, yeah, you name it. And it's all been based on a lie if there is no resurrection. But see, that if is a huge word. I know it's just two letters. But it has huge weight. It's if there is no resurrection. Thing is, there is a resurrection. And that changes 
everything, all those things that could be conceived as a negative if there were no resurrection, become a positive because there is a resurrection. As he goes on in verse 20, he says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, we are all descendants of Adam, that that original sin which we all take part in, we all reach that point of knowing what is right and wrong and choosing wrong and at that point become guilty. Just as everyone dies because we belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. So there's the chronology, the the order to how this is going to happen. Verse 24, after that, the end will come when he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power. For Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet. Now that beneath his feet, that's um, that's an expression from the ancient world. Uh, when kings conquered another kingdom, one of the ways that they would depict that in, in pictures or in statues and things of that nature is they would picture themselves with their foot upon the neck or the head of their enemy, showing their complete subjugation. So for Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet. Um, is evoking that imagery. It is a complete domination of those who stood opposed. 26. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For the scripture says, God put all things under his authority. Of course, when it says all things are under his authority, that does not include God himself who gave Christ his authority. Then, When all things are under his authority, the Son will put himself under God's authority. So that God, who gave his Son authority over all things, will be utterly supreme over everything, everywhere. Now, that that can kind of make your head swim if you start thinking about it. Because when you're dealing with the Son and when you're dealing with God the Father, you're dealing with different members of the Trinity, the the Godhead. But it is God the Father that is the authority, and he gives his authority to Christ the Son to carry out his redemptive work. And at the culmination of his kingdom, he hands it over, or at the pinnacle of his kingdom, he hands it over to God. He hands that authority, having done what he was... um, instructed to do, being obedient to God the Father, he hands it back to him with it being complete so that so that God, 
who gave his son authority over all things, as it says in verse 28, will be utterly supreme over everything. Hmm. So death is just one of the things being defeated. The idea of resurrection should not be a crazy idea to us because we begin to understand Christ has defeated sin and death. Just as death reigned because of Adam and his sin and that sin carried down the line, death has been eliminated through Christ and through his work. Because in Christ, all who, uh, what does it say back in 22? Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. New life in Christ. Death through Adam, life through Christ. That is the difference. That's that, that turning point, that, that change point, if you will. Well, he goes on in verse 29 to say, if the dead will not be raised, what point is there in people being baptized for those who are dead? Why do it unless the dead will someday rise again? Now, verse 29 is an interesting verse because I will tell you that is the one and only reference in scripture to baptism of the dead or baptism for the dead. It is not something that we see in church history. It is not something that we see elsewhere in Scripture being referenced. Paul uses it as an example. Um, We don't know pretty much anything about the practice. Now, I know there are those who have latched onto it in some of our modern cults and try to make a big deal out of it. But as far as Scriptural authority and church history, there's just hardly anything there. But Paul is referencing something that was going on that the Corinthian church was aware of and using it as an illustration. That doesn't necessarily lend it authority. It doesn't make it prescriptive that this is something we ought to do. Much like Paul in other places has quoted some Greek philosophers, he's not saying these philosophers spoke for God. He's using the elements of truth that those philosophers related that the people would have known to illustrate the truth of God. Here, it's something that was happening. They were apparently, uh, some groups somewhere that they were aware of, were having people baptized for those that are dead. And he's saying, you know, look how ridiculous that, if there's no resurrection, then look at how ridiculous that is. Why do it unless the dead will someday rise again? And you may want to know more about that, and you may want to dig deeper into that. Good luck with it, because there's just not the material there. Um, And one of those phrases I picked up years ago actually comes from uh, a couple of guys, Fee and Stewart, that wrote a great little book on how to study the Bible for all it's worth. Recommend the book. Maybe out of print now, or maybe a new edition, but well worth it if you can find it. Um. In there, they remind you, the Bible tells you everything you need to know in your relationship with God. It does not tell you everything you want to know. 
Uh, we may want more information on verse 29. We don't have it. That's a want to know. Apparently, it's not a need to know. So there we are with 29. Now we move on. Verse 30. And why should we ourselves risk our lives hour by hour? Now Paul's talking about himself, his co-laborers, and the apostles. Why should we all, Why should we ourselves risk our lives hour by hour? For I swear, dear brothers, hang on, I swear, dear brothers and sisters, that I face death daily. And yeah, there were people that wanted to kill Paul. There were. There were people that tried. There were people that took him out to the city gates and thought they had stoned him to death. He says, this is a certainty, or this is as certain as my pride in what Christ Jesus our Lord has done in you. Not his pride in himself, but his pride in what Christ has done in the lives of the Corinthians, the believers there. Verse 32, and what value is there in fighting wild beasts? Those people of Ephesus, if there will be no resurrection from the dead, and if there is no resurrection, let's feast and drink for tomorrow we die. Now he's quoting there, and that's a, a Greek proverb, you know, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If, if all we've got is life, let's just live it up. Don't be fooled by those who say such things. For bad company corrupts good character. In other words, you hang out with people that spout bad advice, you're going to be influenced by bad advice. Don't, don't do it. Think carefully about what is right and stop sinning. For to your shame, I say that some of you don't know God at all. Now, I know there are some in modern church life that may read that passage and go, whoa, 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 uh, get there as we say, get their hackles up. Uh, think carefully about what is right and stop sinning. For to your shame, I say that some of you don't know God at all. And folks, that's the truth. You can hang around church, you can show up to meetings, you can learn to speak the language, but if your heart does not belong to Christ, you may very well not know God at all. Um, I've had opportunity to spend a fair amount of time around doctors and in hospitals, and in that time, I have picked up some of the jargon. Oh, it's fun when I go meet with doctors because I can rattle off all sorts of terms and they actually know what I'm talking about. Um, I've even seen how doctors dress. I've learned some of the ways things are done. There's certain order and rhythm to things. So if I walk into a hospital and I, I put on a, you know, scrubs and, and a name badge and and I spout some of the language, and I maybe hang out in the lounge with some of the employees of that medical facility, does that make me a doctor? Um, now, I'll give you the short answer to that. Absolutely not. I may have learned the language. I may hold the appearance of. I may, you know, hang around in the places that they hang around, but that doesn't make me them. 
people can hang around the church. They can go through rituals in the church. They can be involved in activities in the church. They can learn the language and, and, and have the look, uh, whatever that means. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they know God. God calls us to stop sinning and to think about what is right. Not just think about what is right, but let our minds be dominated by what is right in the sight of God, that we would honor him, that we would live our lives in such a way we are expressing our love back to him for the love he has lavished on us. We cannot live like we don't know who God is and like he means nothing in our lives and honestly claim to know him as Savior and Lord. It doesn't work. And Paul here is challenging the church at Corinth. This idea that they could sit there and go, oh, I'm a follower of Christ. I'm a believer in Christ. I've trusted in him for salvation, but there's no afterlife. There's no resurrection from the dead. There's no... It's just this life. He's going, you've just gutted the message of the gospel. Because the message of the gospel is life. It is rooted in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, who atoned for our sins on the cross with the shedding of his blood and rose again on the third day to show that death no longer has power over us. Victory over death through Christ. You can't just ignore that or pretend that that's not part of what it is to know Christ. And if you are doing that, then you don't know God. And if your life evidences no relationship with God, then you may very well not know God. It's a stern warning for the church at Corinth, and it's a stern warning for the church today. Well, now he goes from talking about the resurrection to the resurrected body. Um, boy, as a pastor, I get questions. Of what, what's our resurrected body going to be like? My standard answer is, I don't know, but it's going to be better than the one we got now. Let's pick up in verse 35 as we talk about the resurrection and the resurrection bo resurrected body. In verse 35, it says, But someone may ask, how will the dead be raised? What kind of bodies will they have? What a foolish question. When you put a seed into the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant unless it dies first. And what you put in the ground is not the plant that will grow, but only a bare seed of wheat or whatever you're planting. When God gives it the new body he wants it to have, a different plant grows from each kind of seed. Similarly, there are different kinds of flesh. One kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are also bodies in the heavens and bodies on the earth. The glory of the heavenly bodies is different from the glory of earthly bodies. The sun has one kind of glory, while the moon and the stars each have another kind. And even the stars differ from each other in their glory. It is the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die. 
but they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They're buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. They are buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. For just as there are natural bodies, there are also spiritual bodies. The scripture tells us the first man, Adam, became a living person. But the last Adam, that is Christ, is a life-giving spirit. What comes first is the natural body, then the spiritual body comes later. Adam, the first man, was made from the dust of the earth, while Christ, the second man, came from heaven. Earthly people are like the earthly man, and heavenly people are like the heavenly man. Just as we are now like the earthly man, we will someday be like the heavenly man. What I am saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. Now, when Paul says secret, basically means things that aren't understood, he's going to explain. Things that may not have been obvious to the world through the gospel are made obvious. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we, 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 let me try that again. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. And when the trumpet sounds those who have died will be raised to live forever, and we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Now, that quote is Old Testament. The first part of it is from Isaiah 25. The second part is from Hosea 13. But Paul strings them together to draw the point. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Verse 56, for sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Now, we've covered a lot of text there. I mean, we covered 35 through 58. Now I want to go back, and I'm, I'm not going to dig too heavily into this because I think it is incredibly self-explanatory. Uh, Paul uses the analogy of seed that has fallen to the ground and died, and then it grows into something very different than a seed. Something that produces seed, sure, but something very different than the seed that went into the ground. 
And he uses that as an analogy for our bodies. For what what's the resurrected body like, the glorified body like, compared to the physical body that dies and is buried? And uh, let me just dispel something here. It doesn't matter the earthly mode of disposal for this shell when it is empty. I've had people say, but, you know, if you're cremated, there's nothing for God to resurrect. Well, I'm pretty sure if you're eaten by sharks, there's not a lot left to resurrect either. I mean, and if you're in the ground long enough, it will rot away. Even the bones will ultimately rot away and there won't be anything to resurrect. Um, the thing is, God doesn't need your broken, empty shell of a body to give you that new spiritual body at the resurrection. And by spiritual, I don't necessarily mean that it's just spirit. And I don't think that's what Paul's saying here. He's drawing that distinction between things of this earth and things of God and things of God are spiritual. Christ was flesh and blood and dwelt among us. And yet he was spiritual. He had a spiritual body. Um, he's saying we're going to be like Christ, not like Adam. We're going to have victory over death through Christ, not be subject to death like Adam because of our sin. Because our sins have been cleared away. And our sins led to death. And our sins became sins because of the law. And they led to death, which for our earthly bodies meant the end. But through Christ, there is forgiveness. There is grace and atonement for our sins. So the power of sin is removed. Death is defeated. And there is life. And so Paul's saying, look, it, it's a ridiculous question to say, how are we going to be raised? And what, are, what sort of bodies are we going to have? The deal is we're going to have a new glorified body. We are going to have a spiritual body. We are going to have a body that is like Christ, not a body that is like Adam. And so we put our hope and our trust in that. And we celebrate that death has been defeated through Christ. And so we get to the last couple verses. For sin is the sting that results in death. The law gives sin its power, but thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. So my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord. For you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. So he takes this, um, this complaint, this false teaching, this idea there is no resurrection, or you can't explain what the resurrected body is going to be like, so it must not be true. Um, you know, there's nothing past this life. The, this, this twisted idea that is contrary to the message of the gospel that seemed to be a problem in the church at Corinth, and he turns it around. And he, in his response to it, basically makes a rallying cry for the church at Corinth. So, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. 
you know, be rooted in that foundation of the gospel of Christ. Do not move from it. Be immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord. Our passion, our drive should be for the Lord. For you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. If you are serving God, it may look like what you're doing in service of the Lord isn't yielding much in the way of results by this world's standards. That doesn't matter because God is doing something whether you see it or not. So follow him, serve him, live in obedience to him and trust him. Do you? Do you trust in him? Do you work enthusiastically for the Lord? And do you realize nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless? That's Paul's reminder to the church at Corinth. It's also a reminder for us today. Let's live for our Lord and Savior, trusting in the future, knowing that death has been defeated. It has been swallowed up in victory. And give thanks to God. He gives us our victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace and mercy. Thank you that you give us victory over sin and death, that you give us the the hope and the promise of eternal life, of a resurrected body, of spending eternity in relationship with you. Father, thank you that you have forgiven us for our sins, removed that penalty of death from our heads and saved us through Jesus the Christ by your love and your grace. Father, help us to live for you grounded in the truth of the gospel, holding tight to and building on that foundation. Lord, help us to be immovable and strong. In Jesus' name, amen.